Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. Today we are at the Smithsonian Institution and we are talking with Dr. Frank Blazich. And Frank, you are one of the curators here at the museum, but can you tell us exactly what your title is and what you do here? So my full name is uh, I'm Frank Blazich. Uh, I am a curator of modern military history here in the National Museum of American History, and I pretty much do everything 20th century military. I do Army, Navy, some Air Force. I do Marine Corps, Merchant Marine, Civil Defense, Civil Air Patrol, Coast Guard Auxiliary, and a bit of everything, really, about America's military experience in the 20th century. And thankfully for me, there's a lot to cover, so I'm never bored, (laughs) and I'm always busy. And you, not only do you work with a great many artifacts, but you write and research all these materials that you come across. Absolutely. I certainly try to as much as possible to tie into the original mission of the Smithsonian to increase and diffuse knowledge. So it's it's fun to have the physical objects, but the, the real joy comes out of telling the story behind the object, uh, either how it came to be or who owned the object or how they came to acquire it. And there's a lot of mystery and a lot of myth there, too. Sometimes, so you get to play MythBuster and kind of dig into an object and really find out what the truth was, or at least an approximation of of the truth. You can't always get exactly down to the the, the, the foundation, but you can get close, and that keeps me busy <laughs> and uh, gives me something to do. In a crude way to put it. Now, as this is our World War One podcast, what type of uh, World War One materials do you have on display in the museum? right now. So right now in our main military exhibition, which is called The Price of Freedom, Americans at War, we have one large case in that display focused on the First World War. Uh, There's two objects in particular uh, for the animal lovers out there. We have Stubby, who was the mascot of the 26th Infantry Division. Uh, There was a movie that came out of the last year called Sergeant Stubby, animated film. Subject of many books, uh, much loved. There's to some extent, he's the mascot of Georgetown uh, in terms of the Bulldogs. Stubby is believed to be kind of the origin of their mascot. We also have the famed World War I hero pigeon, Cherami. Cherami is also on display there in the case. Another fun item, uh, which is kind of just outside the case on what we call the reader rail, is the Distinguished Service Cross of uh, General of the Army's uh, John J. Pershing. Although I will give a disclaimer, uh, General Pershing did not receive that medal for actions in World War I, but actually actions in the Philippines prior to World War I. Uh, but his actual medal is there on display, and I believe he received it on his 80th birthday. So there's just three items. We also have a Liberty engine, aircraft engine. Uh, there's Vickers machine gun. I believe we have a Lewis gun on display. German hand grenades, trench periscope. Doughboy uniform, kind of a a whole bunch of objects just to give our visitors an overview, a taste, if you will, of basically what World War I had to entail. Doing a military exhibit that covers all the major conflicts, space can be a bit of a challenge. So a lot of our World War I items are not on display, and hopefully I can share a bit of them here with you today. Well, of those items that are here in the Smithsonian, how do they come here? Uh, like with uh, Stubby or Cherami, both of which are were live animals, yes. now are stuffed and are at the Smithsonian. Uh, did, did they come from the Army or 
Well, in the case of Shermie, Sh- was a donation from the Army after Shermie's passing in, uh, get my, my brain work here, in June of 1919. Uh, Shermie's remains were then transferred to essentially what was the National Museum of Natural History, where the taxidermist Nelson Wood uh, mounted Shermie, if it prepared Shermie for display. And from that point, Shermie was being transferred over to what is now, we you know today, the National Museum of American History. So that's how Shermie came in. Stubby remained with Stubby's owner, because Stubby was a private pet. And when Stubby passed away, uh, Stubby's uh, was essentially skinned. And so what you see there is the skin that was mounted, but Stubby's remains are cremated, and Stubby's ashes are inside the mount, are actually inside wow. the mount. So a fun detail a lot of people yeah. don't know about Stubby. Well, uh, now, in working with all these things, and you have a vast amount of materials here, you run across things where you have no idea what it is at first, and then you have to go into it. And we're going to talk about a few of these things, your favorite pieces today. Correct. Um, the first is the Medal of Honor of George McMurtry, who was with the Lost Battalion in World War One. Can you tell us a little bit about McMurtry and the Medal of Honor and how it got here? Absolutely. So George McMurtry, uh, George G. McMurtry, he's uh, born in Pittsburgh in 1876, uh, really grew up in privilege. Uh, so he had a, a stable upbringing. He had a good education. He was actually a star athlete as well as scholar, and he was at Harvard University studying when the Spanish-American War broke out. He, I, I, apparently the war was a lot more exciting than his studies, so he decided to uh, leave Harvard and joined Troop D of something known as the 1st United States Volunteer Cavalry. But nobody knows of it as that. They call them the Rough Riders. So he decides to go with former Assistant Secretary of the Navy Theodore Roosevelt down to Cuba, and he will fight as a Rough Rider for the war. Uh, after getting out of the after getting out of the service, he then goes to New York. Uh, I believe he finishes his studies at Harvard and becomes a stockbroker and becomes a millionaire, doesn't he? Millionaire at the age of thirty. So now World War One comes along, and he's in. I think he's forty two. He has no obligation to serve, but he decides to attend the Plattsburgh training camp, and he's commissioned a first lieutenant and the three hundred eighth Infantry Regiment. He commands E Company. And 308 is in something known as the 77th Division, or the Metropolitan Divisions, made up of tons of young men from New York. So you have these officers who are these kind of privileged, educated, white-collar individuals really commanding a bunch of immigrants, first-generation Americans in many cases, and Americanizing them, so to speak. And here's a guy who's a millionaire on top of it, but also a combat vet in his defense. Uh, he goes overseas with the 77th. Uh, he'll rise to the rank of captain, and he's actually going to be commanding the 2nd Battalion of the 308. So that's going to be, uh, uh, brain freeze up here again, E Company, uh, F Company, G Company. So you mentioned this lost battalion action. So on October 2nd, 1918, the, the 1st and 2nd Battalion of the 308th Infantry Regiment, the 1st Battalion is commanded by a guy named Major Charles W. Whittlesey. Uh, also a, a lawyer by training, very quiet man in some respects. Uh, Whittlesey is going to take uh, his first battalion, so A, B, and C companies. McMurtry is going to support him with E, F, and G companies. They're also going to have uh, K Company of the 307th Infantry Regiment and C and D companies of the 306th Machine Gun Battalion. They're going to fight in the Argonne Forest. On October 2nd, they're very successful in their advance. In fact, they achieve their objective. But the problem is... The units on their flanks do not. 
So they find themselves then cut off and surrounded by the Germans. They're called the Lost Battalion. They're not technically lost. We know they're there. We just can't get to them. So they're trapped. It's about 554 of these men. Uh, McMurtry, on October 4th, as they're fighting off the Germans, trying to capture or destroy them, he gets wounded in the knee by shrapnel. On, on October 6th, he gets wounded again, this time on the shoulder, from a big splinter of a German hand grenade, which we call potato mashers, because it's a, basically a little metal explosive right. on one and a big wooden handle. And yet he still continues to serve Whittlesey, as, as Whittlesey is essentially executive officer number two. Uh, on the night of October 7th, American forces finally relieved the Lost Battalion and reached them. The next day, only 194 men of that original 554 walk out. For Whittlesey, McMurtry, and also Captain Nelson Holderman, these are the three main officers of that effort, will all receive the Medal of Honor for their bravery. McMurtry actually receives his on February 9th, 1919. At that point, he's going to rise to major in the Army, and he's going to separate. And he'll, in addition to his... Medal of Honor. He also has a campaign medal from being with the Rough Riders. I believe the French give him the Legion de Honor, and he receives other decorations from Montenegro and, and I believe Italy as well, as does Whittlesey. McMurtry will pass away, goodness, uh, dies, I want to say, in the early 1960s. And in 1964, it's his widow, Teresa, will actually donate all of McMurtry's military medals here to the Smithsonian. And that is actually how we came to acquire his Medal of Honor. It was on display many, many decades ago when we first had it, uh, but then, since then it's largely remained in storage. And I like to highlight McMurtry's medal because it's a tie-in to Cherami. So we have Cherami on display as a participant, as the story is told in the Lost Battalion action. But McMurtry is the human component of right. that story. And that's why I like to tell it. Amazing. Now, the next one is the Sperry Depth Charge. Now, this is a very uh, important piece. This is a cool one. This is a cool one. So I, I, for the listeners, if, if you're familiar with what a beer keg looks like, or perhaps we'll say small smoker grill, okay, or like oil drum. It, World War I, there's all these new technological marvels in, in warfare. And one of the most sinister is the submarine, particularly the German Untersee boat or U-boat. There's really no defenses against submarines early in the war. And I know that sounds crazy, but if the sub goes underwater, there's no means to find it. This is pre-sonar. So how do you destroy it? Well, there's sea mines. These have existed for decades prior. I mean, you can go back centuries. So the Royal Navy is going to begin chewing over, okay, well, we have these mines. Well, is there a way that we could make the mine a little more mobile? And from this, they're going to develop a mine that has a hydrostatic, what they call pistol, or it's basically a trigger that's actuated by water pressure. So you, you take this container, you fill it full of explosives, you throw it off a ship, it sinks to a certain depth and goes bang. The U.S. Navy uh, in 1915, so before we enter the war, creates something called the Naval Consulting Board. And Secretary of the Navy Josephus Daniels creates it. It's run by a guy named Thomas Edison, probably familiar to a lot of people. One of the guys on this board is called Elmer Sperry. Sperry is the co-inventor of the gyroscope, uh, a device that has really transformed the 20th century. And Sperry Rand is... Of Sperry Rand, of Sperry Rand. So Elmer Sperry is going to chair this uh, Naval Consulting Board's Committee on Mines and Torpedoes. Again, what do we do about the sub-threat? And on April 16th, 1917, so mind you, this is only 10 days after we've entered World War I, he files a patent application for something called a depth-controlled mine. 
we have one of these in the collection. It came here from Sperry Gyroscope 1964, and when I got here, no, we weren't really sure what it was. And I managed to track down the original patent, and it's a really interesting device. So it was just sitting on a shelf? Sitting on a shelf, I profess rather dusty, <laughs> kind of in the dark, right? What is this strange thing? But it looks like a small barrel or beer keg. It's been, a section of it's been cut out like a big pie wedge, so you can see the internal design of it. So what Sperry designed was, this thing weighed about 100 pounds, roughly. A single, uh, a sailor could actually manhandle it, toss it over the side. When it fell off the ship, the top part would break off and act as a buoy and a float. And there'd be a cable connected to the lower half that had about 50 pounds of gun cotton. And that would sink to a predetermined depth and then detonate. And that was, and what this is, is the U.S. Navy Mark I depth charge. This is the first ever attempt by the U.S. Navy to develop this anti-submarine weapon. Honestly, though, it was 50 pounds of explosive is just not enough. Mm. It's, it's not going to work. We, we make 10,000 of these. As far as I'm aware, this is the only example left in existence in the United States. Wow. As soon as we enter the war and the first Navy destroyers make it overseas in May of 1917, they take one look at the British depth charge, and they said, we want those because <laughs> they're about 300 pounds. They're, they look closer to like an oil 55-gallon oil drum. They are effective. They do manage to sink some submarines in World War I. And since then, the Navy has refined its depth charge technology. But what we have here is this granddaddy of them all. And interestingly enough, developed by uh, Elmer Sperry, of, of the, as I said, co-inventor of the gyroscope. Now he did, did, and he wasn't working with any Brits, the he British wasn't. at the time. He wasn't. This was, a, as far as I know, an entirely American. But did he design. know that they were working on it as well? They were aware, okay. and what eventually happened is we acquired patents or copies of the British plans, ah. and one of the sources I found said we took the British design, tinkered with it, repatented it so we didn't have to pay patent royalties to the British, and then manufactured them. I think that becomes the Mark II depth charge, mm. and those depth charges will largely be what we use in World War One, and we continue to refine the depth charge uh, in World War II in particular. And the, the Navy doesn't even have one of these Mark I's, do they? Uh, as far as I know, the Navy doesn't. I checked with one of the Navy's museums. They said they don't have one in, this, in their collection. So I'm hoping to work with them in the future to potentially loan this object to them so that they can use it for display. Hmm. Now, our third piece is from uh, one of the most famous men of World War I, General of the Army's John J. Pershing. And this is his campaign medal that was created for him after the war. But it's a special one, isn't it? Correct. So this is, a, we have General Pershing's World War I Victory Medal. Uh, disclaimer, we actually have all of General Pershing's military decorations here at the museum. They were donated to the museum by his son after General Pershing's death. What makes General Pershing's World War I Victory Medal so unique is it has 14 battle clasps attached to it. He is the only member of the U.S. Army to receive all of the battle clasps, plus a clasp for what they called a defensive sector, so non-combat mm -hmm. actions. The medal itself, uh, it's the same medal that was issued to all the uniformed participants in the Army, uh, the Navy, and the Marine Corps for the First World War. Uh, the medals are actually first struck in 1920. Pershing's is unique, not just because of the battle clasp, but it's got a stamping, a very tiny stamping, at the base of the physical metal, or the planchette, as, as, from a technical term, and it's marked USM-5. We're not exactly sure what it means, but we believe it means United States Mint Metal 5. So this was the fifth metal ever struck from the dies, which begs the question, well, where are 1, 2, 3, and 4? 
there's a theory out there that number one went to President uh, Wilson. Number two, or, or two or three, would go to the Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, and the Secretary of War, Newton Baker. Possibly number four may have gone to Peyton March, who was Chief of Staff of the Army, and then that would give Pershing number five. Uh, one of the interesting questions, what about the Chief of Naval, Naval Operations, William S. Benson? Did he get number six or number four? I don't know. So it, it's a, for those listening, there's a great research question. See if you can find another example of this metal, any type of marking on the very, very base of the, of the planet. Or any of those other guys. Or any of the other guys. See, see if they, they have one. And, now, so. uh, did any other items from General Pershing come here, or did the Sun only donate the medals? So we have General Pershing's, uh, most of his uniforms. Wow. We have his medals. We have uh, presentation medals given by various communities, uh, like Keys to the City, things like that. We actually have his office from his headquarters in France in World War One. So his desk, his chair, his wow. file tab, you know, file pads, an uh, ink blotter. They boxed up the whole office and donated it. So we have all of that. And Is we- it somewhere in a crate? It's in a crate now. It was on display for the Centennial. We next, to the Ark and the Covenant. next to the Ark of the Covenant. We had General Pershing's desk and his chair out on display, as well as a reproduction of the battle map. Wow. That was literally the last week, well, basically the first week in November 1918, the last week of World War One, if you will. They had reproduced that map in his office, and we have that in the collection. Has that ever been on display, though? It was recently all on display. Really? Uh, wow. We had it, as I said, for the Centennial. Uh, we took that exhibit down and rotated it with an exhibit commemorating the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and so that's what we currently have on display. But General Pershing's headquarters invariably will be on display in the future, perhaps for the uh, 125th anniversary of World War One or another anniversary opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Now, one of the weird ones yes. that you have, and this this to us is, is just really amazing, uh, you have the valet kit for Kaiser Wilhelm II yes. of Germany. Yes. Now... This is just goofy. How does this get to the... This is one of these wild objects. It's, the story is kind of too crazy to, to explain, but long story short, for the listeners, it is a black box. It, it's, it's wood and leather and brass. It, it's just a big box, and it, the, the technical term is a field utility kit, but truth be told, the Kaiser wouldn't have been using this stuff in it. He'd have an aide or a valet doing it. It's got in there little tools. It's got a nail extractor, glass bottles, spurs, spare buttons... Uh, it actually has a dog collar for his dachshunds. And all of, you know, how did we get this? And the, the crazy story is it was acquired by a guy named Harry J. Anslinger. And Anslinger was the commissioner of narcotics under Presidents Hoover, Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy. And he managed to acquire it in November 1918 from Baron von Schroeder, who is one of the Kaiser's staff members. And the reason being is, and I have to, I'm going to bring up here a letter, actually, Mr. Anslinger, to explain to our listeners here. So he writes, it was several days before the armistice. Uh, Anslinger was attached to the American legation at The Hague in the Netherlands. And he was instructed by the United States government to make contact with Kaiser Wilhelm II's entourage. And at that point, he's abdicating. He's trying to cross the border into the Netherlands. Uh, to get, I'm butchering pronunciation, to the castle of Count Bentink of Amer, Amerongen. Listeners, look that up for me. And this castle actually had been used by Charles I of England as a refuge <laughs> when he was trying to flee, his, when he had been fleeing his country. Uh, so anyways, he, they do actually manage to meet up with the Kaiser's entourage. 
And it's this point that Ensler meets Baron von Schroeder and obtains the Kaiser's field utility kit. And the Kaiser had carried this at his military headquarters on all the battlefronts. And it's got a seal on the cover, and it's, like I said, a couple items related to him. Turns out the dog collar in there not only has Kaiser Wilhelm's seal on it, it's got a Berlin dog license for his dachshund. Uh, and with this being said, Anslinger has this thing and brings it back. It's even got a, a stamp when it passed through customs in New Jersey. And after the war, he basically put it in the Treasury Department's vault. And it sat at the Treasury Department in its vault, I guess, with gold and bullion and all sorts of treasures from like the 1920s until the Smithsonian gets this thing in 1959. And it was on display, I want to say back in the 60s, maybe early 70s. And then since then, we've just kind of, like, it's, a, it's an already in its own box. We've just had it in storage. And I came across it one day, and I saw it, I'm like, what is that? They're like, oh, that was the Kaiser's. <laughs> and so I started digging into it. And so it's, you got an interesting story here because it's the Kaiser. It's World War I. For listeners, look up Anslinger. He's got an interesting story to him. As well as look up Baron von Schroeder who also has an interesting story because he returns again in World War II, and he's actually going to be an officer in the SS. He's going to be tried and convicted of crimes against humanity. I mean, you've got a lot of interesting, nefarious characters. Sidelights, yeah. Sidelights tied into one object. So it's, it's a great example here of how you can have a single object that's tied into a lot of different stories. And that's the best part of my job is just finding out these stories and going, whoa, did you know about this? And the final piece that we have, and this is a piece that you collected. Yes. And can you tell, this is a, the art book of Charles Moreau. So this is a really cool piece that came here to the museum earlier this year. Uh, and this, so Charles Caesar Marrow or Morrow, Pennsylvania, uh, son of Italian immigrants. And he had worked, uh, after school, he had basically worked on the Great Lakes uh, as a seaman aboard ships. And he, he, he survives a couple shipwrecks and then takes up sketching. He discovers he's got a talent for drawing. So he goes, he, uh, goes back to Patterson, New Jersey, where his family had moved, and he begins drawing cartoons. Some of these get published. Uh, he then goes to Chicago, and he'll take night classes at the Art Institute of Chicago. But when America enters World War I, he's a very patriotic man, and he enlists on July 13th, 1917, so very early on. Uh, he's first assigned artillery, but then finds himself reassigned to the 1st Division and in an engineer regiment. So he goes overseas in late 1917 to France. As soon as he gets over to France, in about January 1918, he asks a YMCA worker to get him a sketchbook, or just get him kind of a blank sketch pad. And he will proceed from January 1918 till he's wounded and aghast in October 1915. He draws. He draws the battlefront. He draws what no man's land looks like. He draws combat. He sketches all this out in pencil. And here's a combat engineer. He's a sapper. He's going to be in the tool sec sector. He'll be in Cantigny. He'll be at Soissons. He'll be at uh, Salarese. He'll, and then he'll be at uh, Musargon. He's actually gassed on October 5th, 1918, by mustard gas, the Musargon. He's just an amazing amount of combat. And he's there for the first of it, really the, 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 the tip of the spear for everything. Well, he comes home. Uh, he's honorably discharged. He, he leaves the Army in 1919, and he'll work for the Buffalo Courier, but he does a lot of his time for the New York Herald Tribune, and he'll be a cartoonist for the New York Herald Tribune for many decades and retire from there and retire to upstate New York where he dies in 1980. But he keeps his sketch pad. He takes his original pencil drawings and colorizes them, 
and he goes back and he kind of refines the mm-hmm. artwork, if you will. His granddaughter uh, reached out to me and they said, we have this. It's a family treasure. Uh, he had kept this in his mess kit the whole time of the war, and they brought it here to the Smithsonian this year and added it to our collections. An amazing example of art, not as an official uh, American Expeditionary Forces artist, but as a the common man and able to capture a window onto the war that is so unique unto itself. And it, by someone who's with the 1st Division, he's there at the very beginning of everything. Now these, to me, they're some of the best drawings I've ever seen of World War One. I. I mean, uh, just in a, a small glimpse. Is there, were these, any of these ever published? A handful, a handful that I know were, have shown up in newspapers, particularly, um, in Syracuse, I think it's the Syracuse Post-Standard, way back in the day, printed a, like a few of them, just a handful of them. Well, that's where he was from, wasn't it? Correct, yeah. yeah. He, and he was up in uh, Pulaski, New York. And so, and he had also written for some of the Syracuse papers and or drawn cartoons. So they published some of his stuff uh, in the 70s or maybe 80s by the family. But the vast majority of this have never been seen, uh, never seen by scholars or researchers. Is there any plans to... Put something out. The this? hope is to do a digital, possibly a digital exhibition, and share some of these drawings uh, with the public. And that's part of the goal of the family too, is to be able to something that they've treasured. They wanted to share with the nation and make this incredible window onto the war available for all visitors to see. Well, we all look forward to that. And uh, Frank, we want to thank you uh, for sitting down with us. It's my pleasure, and thank you all for speaking with me today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.